We have four sons. Sawyer's our third. Um, we had an unexpected visitor, all right? And so let me set the scene for you, all right? So Seth and Sutton, they're our two oldest. We've got them put in two bed. Um, Cherish is nine months pregnant. We're at that point where we have to be induced, and so we're going in the next morning to be induced. And so we're sitting in our living room the night before she's about to go in, have Sawyer, our third son. We're trying to just enjoy our last night as a family of four, and then it happens. A mouse walks right into the room. And y'all, this mouse is so smug. Right, like so, the mouse. I mean, if it's like a person, it's like walking in with his head up. It's got chest out. It's like I own this place, you know. And it was. I mean, we're Cherish and I are looking at each other. It's like, is this really happening? The night before, we're about to have our third son. This is happening. A mouse walks into the room, and like, I just get angry, right? You know, like I'm angry. There's a mouse in my house. I'm about to be out of here for three days. Have to deal with this thing. Like, man, I'm so angry. And so we try to like capture the mice, all right, this mouse, all right? And so you can laugh with me here because we are idiots, all right? So here's what we did. We got the trash liner out of the trash can and we set the trash can down on the floor, all right? We got it in. It ran back into the kitchen. So we bring it that we bring the, the trash can and we play it down and we get Cheez-Its, right? It's like a mouse. They like cheese. The only thing we have is Cheez-Its. And so we start laying like this little trail of Cheez-Its towards the trash can. It's so dumb, right? Like that's not how you catch a mouse at all. But you can imagine Cherish being nine months pregnant down trying to like be ready, right, with a trash bag, right? I'm with the trash can ready to like tip it over on top of the mouse whenever it gets in there, right? And so we're like, okay, this is it. We're ready. And so the mouse, it's underneath the oven. It comes out from under the oven, grabs one of the Cheez-Its and runs right back out. And it's like the stupid thing, right? Like you can just hear it chowing down on this Cheez-It underneath our oven, in our kitchen, Cherish and I looking like idiots, with the trash can and a trash bag, like, ready to pounce. And so Cherish, being uh, the more wise of the two of us, does, like, a quick research online on her phone. She finds out, okay, if you actually get a mouse trap and you put it underneath the couch, that's usually where you're going to catch the mouse. And so it's like, we're not going to be able to get this mouse tonight. Let's just try it. And so we put the, the thing underneath the couch. We go to bed. Next morning, thing is dead. So satisfying, right? Things gone, unexpected visit. Yes, that's right. You can clap for that. You can clap for that. It's gone. Now, like, look, why do we get so upset, right? Why, did, why was I so angry about this mouse showing up? It's because it's disruptive. This unexpected visitor was disruptive to our plants. Cherish and I, we have plans to just enjoy and be able to just sit and relax before the storm hits. If you've had a baby, you know that it is a storm, right? They like take over and consume. There's no sleep. Like you're always tired. You don't know what you're doing most of the time because you're just like in and out of consciousness. And so we know this is coming. This is our third. We've done this two times. And so we're like, we're just trying to enjoy it, right? And then boom, the mouse comes. And it has to, it completely transforms our mindset for the whole night too, right? Like we're trying to wind down, get ready to go to bed, just completely disrupts everything. And we have to deal with it. So we have to confront the stinking mouse that's in our 
our house and we have to deal with it before we go into the hospital the very next day. Completely disruptive. Unexpected visitors are completely disruptive. And that's what we find tonight in the passage that we're looking at in Genesis 18. All right, so what we find is Abraham, verse 1, it tells us that he's seated outside of his tent and he's under some oak trees and he's enjoying his time, right? And then he looks up and there's three unexpected visitors that are there right before him. And look, they are disruptive. What we find in this passage is these unexpected visitors are disruptive to Abraham and Abraham and Sarah's life. And you, they're actually disruptive in a couple of ways. So this mouse disrupted my plans. They disrupted our, the, the, the idea of what we're wanting to do the night before we have Sawyer. But with Abraham and Sarah, these guests are unexpected and they disrupt their lifestyle as well as their mindset. Disrupt their lifestyle as well as their mindset. And so here's what I want us to do tonight. I want to look and unpack how these unexpected visitors disrupt Abraham's lifestyle as well as Sarah's mindset. Because as we look at it, what we actually find is that God is trying to capture our attention too. And he's trying to disrupt our lifestyle and our mindset through the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so we're going to look at this. I'm going to try to draw it into our own life. And here's what I want to give you, all right? I want to give you as God disrupts us, we need to deal with it. And anytime God comes and he confronts our life, you have to respond. You have to deal with it. And so what I want to do is I want to give you two things. I want to give you one, a pattern, all right? I want to give you a pattern that you can try to practice in your own life. And then a couple of applications, two ways that you can take that pattern and apply it to your life in response to God confronting us in this passage tonight. Sound good? I believe as we look through this, like it's going to be a, a gift and a blessing. Anytime God comes and confronts our life, look, it is disruptive, but it's always for our good, right? And so by the end of this, I think we'll walk away like, hey, this is good for me. This is good that God confronts my life in this way. So here's what I want to do. I'm just going to, we're going to look first at how God confronts our lifestyle in the life of Abraham. We're going to look from verses 1 through 8. I'm going to kind of break this down in a couple of sections. Let me reread it so you can try to get into the story with me, all right? You can get in how God is confronting Abraham's lifestyle here, but ultimately he's confronting our lifestyle too. So here's what verse 1 says. The Lord appeared to Abraham the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. I mean, just right there, like trying to just chill, right? And he looked up and he saw three men standing there. And when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I'll bring a bit of bread so that you can make, gain strength for yourselves. And this is why you've passed your servant's way. So later you can continue on and how they respond, yes, do as you have said. All right, so here's what I want to I do. I want you to notice this. All right, there's two things we need to notice. The first one is this, that God desires fellowship. All right, the first thing that we need to notice here is that God desires fellowship. All right, so we know by what's coming up in the coming chapters that God is one of the three that are here as well as two heavenly hosts that are with him. He's going and he has plans, right? God's traveling. He has plans. He's on his way to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know that he has plans. 
But in the midst of these plans, he shows up at Abraham's doorstep to spend time with him. He shows up to spend time with him. All right, so think about this. Like the creator of the universe shows up at Abraham's doorstep. He notices immediately who it is. He runs, goes, bows down to them. And look, God's not looking for just like this Chick-fil-A experience, right? Like Chick-fil-A, super efficient. Get you in and out, get your food, get out of the door, go dine somewhere else, right? That's not what God shows up to do. He shows up to stick around, right? You see this because Moses gives us so many plans. Moses is the author of Genesis. Moses gives us so many details about this meal, right? So Abraham, immediately after he gets these three guests, what does he do? He runs to the tent. He says, quick, Sarah, you got to make some bread. Bread doesn't just pop up, right? Like it takes time. You go and you make the bread. It takes hours to do this. Same thing with the, the, the meal, right? He goes and he, he has this lamb that's prepared for veal. He's going to have this really nice meal with these, these guests. Look, it's still alive, right? He goes, he gives the lamb to the, uh, his servant. The servant has to go prepare it. That takes hours too, right? Like, here's what you need to see. Like, God is here for it. God's here for it. He shows up at Abraham's doorstep. He says, hey, but look, he's not just passing by to say, hey, and then keep moving on to go on with his plans. No, he plans to stick around because he's here for fellowship, right? Now, here's what you need to see. This is who God is. God of the Bible is the God of fellowship, all right? So I love the way that this Japanese author, Kusuki Koyama, in his book, um, characterizes who God is, all right? Here's how he describes who God is. God is the three-mile-per-hour God. God is the three-mile-per-hour God. What does that mean? The average walking pace for a human being is three miles per hour. Three miles per hour. So God, being a God of fellowship, goes at the speed of walking. Why? Because you have to go through life, right? Like life is happening. We're going through life. But here's what God wants to do. He desires fellowship with you. God desires relationship with you. And so God doesn't go out ahead of you. He's not like running and we're having to like try to catch up to him. He's not trailing behind. No, God is going at three miles per hour because going at three miles per hour is going through life, but it's at a pace that you can have a conversation. And that's exactly who our God is. Our God is the God who desires relationship and fellowship with you. He has, he's the God that has done everything that was needed in order to have relationship with you. He did not save you out of a life of sin in order that he could be distant and off in the future, but he saved you because he longs to walk through life with you. And so our God that walks at a three-mile pace, he does it again. He shows up to Abraham's doorstep. He's unexpected. And he's not just showing up to say, hey, and move on. He's showing up because he longs for fellowship. He sticks around for the meal. Now, look, this isn't just the first instance. We see this is who God has been from the very beginning of time. All right? So if you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, you see after the fall has happened that God shows up into the garden. And what does God do in the garden? If you look at Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve run and hide, it's because they hear God calling, God coming 
in the evening and the evening breeze showing that there's a pattern that God has in the way that he relates with Adam and Eve and it's so he can come and he can walk and he can enjoy and experience relationship with Adam and Eve. This is who God has always been. God created us in his image in order for us to have a relationship with him. This is what God longs for us. He's not a God. He is a God that has plans, but he's not in a hurry to get to them. He's not going to uh, step out of relationship in order to gain our, his plans. No, he accomplishes his plans by going three miles per hour, going at a speed where he can walk through relationship with us. That's who our God is. Our God is a God who desires fellowship. Now, the problem with this is that we're like Abraham and we're not ready for it. We're like Abraham, we're not ready for it. I, notice the words, I'm going to read through verses 6 through 8, and notice the words that describe Abraham in these verses. All right, Here's what it says. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick! Need three measures of fine flour and make bread. And Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender, choice calf. He got it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. And then Abram took curds and milk. Apparently, he's got a little Wisconsin in him. As well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. And he served them as they ate under the tree. Now, what are the words that stuck out to you? Right? It's hurried. Abraham was hurried. He yells to Sarah, quick. And he runs like there's a frantic pace to his life. Now, look, it's not all bad. It shows some of the importance that he viewed his guests with, that he was, had a sense of urgency to him. But it also reveals that Abraham just wasn't ready, right? He wasn't ready for these unexpected visitors to show up and look these words often describe us too. These words of hurried and quick and running are oftentimes the words that are used to describe our own souls, aren't they? Like we feel this. We feel this inside of us. If, if God is the three mile per hour God, then we are the merry-go-round people. All right? Here's what I mean by that. If you ride on a merry-go-round, we have four boys, so we're on merry-go-rounds all the time, right? So merry-go-rounds, what are they doing? Either you have a constant up-and-down motion. You get on like the, the giraffe at the zoo, right? Get on the, right, Stuart? You get on the giraffe at the zoo. You're going around the merry-go-round. It's going up and down as you're going around the merry-go-round. But then you also are spinning, Right? So there's constant motion. You're going up and down on the draft, and then you're also spinning simultaneously. And as you're doing that, everything else is just a blur, right? Like we go around, we spin around, like we try to one, either cherish myself or off the merry-go-round while the other kids are on there. And so we're holding like Shepard, our two-year-old, up on the draft as he's going up and down and is like trying to get a picture, but everything's blurry, right? Look, that's oftentimes how our life feels, there's just constant up and down in our lives, spinning around, and everything feels blurry. I mean, we feel this all the time, right? Like, we try to cram in work. We try to cram in meetings. 
Then we have all these different trips that we're trying to plan and all this travel that we're trying to do. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can add school on top of all of this. And then I need that side hustle in my life. And so I'm going to get all these extra projects. And then you have social media and all that stupidness that we have to do, right? And so you have all these different things. You have all these activities. You have all these hangouts. You have all this stuff that you're adding to your life. And we feel the constant up and down spinning around blurriness that's going on in life and then God shows up at our doorstep and he's ready for fellowship and what happens where are we at in our soul we're not ready for it you feel that you feel that look God in this story is confronting our lifestyle he's confronting Abraham but he's confronting you and me too so here's what I want us to do, all right? I want us to, I want to give you a pattern. We're going to flesh this pattern out, both in our God's confrontation of our life, lifestyle, but also the confrontation of our mindset, all right? And so if you look throughout the Bible, when God confronts us, like I said, we have to, it demands a response. We have to deal with God's confrontation in our life. And the most common application that you get in the Bible from any preacher is repentance, all right? And so repentance is this. You have to say no to something, a former way of life, and then you have to say yes to something else, a new pattern, right? So you're saying no to an old pattern, and you're saying yes to a new pattern. And so another way of saying that, just two R's that you can kind of take away with you, you have to repent, and then you have to replace. You have to repent, and then you have to replace, all right? So let's try to apply this to God confronting our lifestyle, all right? So Here's what we need to do. Whenever we're seeing God confront our lifestyle, when we're seeing that we are living a merry-go-round pace of life, and God, the three-mile-per-hour God, is approaching us longing for fellowship, here's what we need to do. Repenting looks like slowing down. Repenting looks like slowing down to God's pace, not expecting God to go at our pace, but slowing down at his pace because his pace is best. And then you also have to replace and that's pursuing fellowship, all right? So look, you don't just slow down your pace of life and then say, I did it, I arrived. You're not just doing it so you can create margin and space in your life. You have to replace, y'all. You have to replace. And so what you're doing is you slow down and you have to know how to say no to things. You have to know how to say no in order that you can say yes to the right things, which is fellowship with God. We have to say no and create margin and space in our life, and that's what repentance looks like, but then you have to replace by pursuing fellowship in your life, all right? So here's what this looks like for me. I feel this deeply in my own life right now. I've been talking about this with our staff in our staff sinks every single week, all right? And so um, I'm having to learn how, how to say no better, all right? I'm not good at saying no. I have... I say yes to way too many meetings, say yes to way too many travel engagements, say yes to way too many cohorts. If, there, if conference was like the big deal like five years ago, cohorts are the thing that you do now, right? You always, it's like, hey, you have so much to learn. The best way to learn is that you get into it with, in relationship with other people. It's like the thing that you do right now. And so this last year, I was doing three cohorts at one time, all right? I, dumb, like I know better than that, right? And then I'm trying to say yes to like all these invitations to go and be a part of different things with some of our networks that we're a part of as we're a church plant. And so like, man, I I just felt recently that like God was confronting my own lifestyle. 
God was confronting me and is like, hey, like you are that merry-go-round pace. Like everything in your life is fast-paced. I've had people that have come and hey, do you feel like you're just constantly going from one thing to the next? And the answer was yes. I feel like I'm just constantly going from one thing to the next. And so, look, I'm having to learn what it, said, what it looks like to say no. I'm, looking, I'm learning what it means to say no so I can create margin in my life. And here's what I'm trying to do to replace it, all right? Look, I, I'm trying to go on just like walks with the Lord. I'm trying to create space in my life to go and literally just walk and talk with Jesus. I, I feel, you all feel this too. You have so many things that are going on in your life. I feel this in my life. And it's like I feel that I constantly have all these things that are weighing down on me. I feel anxious very often. And I don't really talk about it with many people, right? Like especially the Lord. And so it's like I, I have this frantic pace and it's producing this anxiety in my life. I continue to say yes to things and it's only making things worse. And so look, I have to repent. I have to turn from that. I have to say no, but I also have to replace and I have to say yes. And so I say no to the frantic pace of life that I'm living so that I can go and spend time with Jesus, right? So I can step into what God has saved me for and that's relationship. And so it's like I'm trying to replace by going on walks with Jesus. I'm just trying to get out and walk and prayer walk and talk to him about the things that are going on in my life. I was doing that this past week, and Michael's like, do you feel any better? It's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, all the things aren't resolved, but, like, I, I feel the fellowship. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel the slowness of the pace of getting to be around my family. Like, God has given me the responsibility to disciple my boys, four boys. Like, I want them to know Jesus. I have to be here for that. I have to two feet here along with my family in order to invest in them the way that I want to. I have to say no strategically so I can say yes lovingly to the people that God has placed in my life that are going to get all of me. You know what I'm saying? And look, you have to do this in order to get fellowship. You have to say no to the things. There are good invitations that are going to come your way. You have to strategically say no so that you can say yes to the things that are best and ultimate in your life, which is fellowship with the Lord. So you have to say no to these other things so you can say yes and pursue fellowship. So here's my question for you. Where do you need to say no that so, so you can give God your yes? Where do you and your life need to say no in order that you can give God your yes. What is it? What, what's the merry-go-round pace in your life right now? What are the things that are causing the anxiety on your soul, the frantic pace that you feel in your life that you need to say no to in order that you can replace and pursue fellowship with a God who so deeply loves you and is pursuing fellowship with you? Like, is it saying no to the binge of streaming at night? Like, you say no to that so you can say yes to, like, finally dusting off the dust on top of your Bible and opening it up, you know? Is it saying no to another hangout? Like, look, Jesus was all about hangouts, right? But, like, he regularly got away from the crowds to do what? To go spend time with his Father. Like, do you, is your life just consumed with hangouts? Like, I strategically saying no so you can also say yes to what's ultimate in your life. Like, what do you need to say no to? 
And then what, like, what is the thing that needs to replace? Like, do you, do you need to get into relationship with other people that are cracking open, op, opening up the Bible so you can spend time in the Word with other men and women that are chasing after Jesus in this life too? Like, do you have that in your life? Like, do you have a space where you're opening up the scriptures that you're reading with other men and women who love Jesus, that are chasing after Jesus, opening it up and being transparent about your life, the things that are going on in your own soul, that people know who you are and that are speaking in and helping you see the struggles that you have with sin that maybe you're blind to or the places that you can come and confess sin so you can bring what's dark and exposed into the light so you can deal with it finally. Like, do you have a place for that? Do you have a place that you can come and you can pursue fellowship with the Lord in the context of community so that you can experience the fellowship that God God has called you to. Look, God, God is confronting us tonight with our lifestyle. Where do you need to say say no in order that you can give God your yes, all right? So God confronts our lifestyle with Abraham, but we see God confront our mindset with Sarah in verses 9 through 15. So let me again reread what's going on. We'll kind of talk through the story and try to point out a couple of things, all right? So here's what verse 9 says. Where is your wife, Sarah? So they're sitting down, right? They're eating the meal. And uh, Abraham's sitting down with them. And they immediately just ask, where is your wife, Sarah? He says, there in the tent, he answered. And the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, like, we need to pause here, all right? Like, this is what God has promised Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis chapter 12. Look, this is well over a decade of them waiting on this promise to happen. At that point in time, they are already past their child-rearing years. And here they are, they're well over 13 years past this um, promise that's been given to Abraham and Sarah, and it still hasn't come to fruition yet. And so the Lord shows up and says that within a year they're going to have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind them, right? So like Sarah is interested in these visitors, right? Abraham and the visitors seated under those oak trees by the entrance of the tent. So Sarah's worked away. She's made the, the bread. She's brought it out like she's interested in the conversation. She overhears it. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So look, what's her response to all of this, right? Like she, she knows her situation. She knows the promise that was given long ago, right? Long ago. And then when she hears this, she laughed to herself and said, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, speaking of Abraham, will I have delight? Do you feel that? Like, you ever you feel the distance at times between, like, the disconnect between what feels like the promises of God and the actualization of them? Like, Sarah feels it in this moment. You feel that with me? Like, you feel that with Sarah here? Like, she laughs at this idea. And God, being who he is, uh, responds, but the Lord asked Abram, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? 
and at the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. And so here's where it gets awkward, right? (laughs) I love how the Bible is just so honest because you feel like the awkwardness, right? So you get verse 15, Sarah denied it. She lies. Now, I I didn't laugh, she said, because she was afraid. She knows who the visitors are. She's afraid, and God doesn't let her get away. He says, but he replied, no, you did laugh. No, it happened, Sarah. I heard it. I heard it. Abraham may not have heard it. He's old. His ears are failing him. I heard it, Sarah. And then it ends. That's like just how the story ends. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like you can cut the tension with a knife. It's just so, so awkward, right? So here's what we need to see in this part of this story, all right? We need to see two things. One, the God that we see here in this story, as well as the rest of the Bible, this God is capable of wonderful things. This God is capable of wonderful things. God asked the question in verse 14, is anything impossible for the Lord? You know what the word impossible in the original language actually means? It means marvelous or wonderful. It means marvelous or wonderful. Maybe if you have your own different translation open with you, that's what it says is anything too marvelous or too wonderful for the Lord. You know who's capable of anything? Parents, right? Parents are capable of anything. In the eyes of a child, parents are capable of anything, aren't they? Like, think back to whenever you were a kid, right? Like, whenever you were a kid, who did you go to that you thought just had endless ability? It was your parents, right? You have a broken toy, who do you go to? Like, you'd bring it to your parents. Hey, will you fix this? It's like something that is destroyed. Like, you've shattered it into pieces, and you have, like, all the pieces in your hands. Like, hey, Dad, will you just fix this for me, Right? Or like, who do you go to when it's like, you need something to be lifted, right? It's like, there's this huge boulder that you want lifted, and it's like, hey, Dad, will you just go, like, do your thing? Like, old man strength, right? Like, will you just go, like, move the boulder for me, right? Or like, you're the person that can reach anything, right? Like, you're the person that can reach anything. It's like, Dad, will you just lift me up? I feel this with my uh, shepherd right now. So, um, shepherd loves basketball. He's two years old. He's this, like... I wonder, like he, he can dribble a story. He's been dribbling since he was 18 months, right? So like many people here can give a claim to that. And so like in the, in the gym, right? Like so in the gym before service, uh, Shepard will be like, hey, dad, will you just lift me up so I can shoot it and I can dunk it in the hoop? And it's like, yo, I'm 5'8", right? <laughs> I'm 5'8", like there's no chance that I'm lifting him up, getting him up to the hoop for him to be able to put the ball through. But he comes with me of like, yeah, this is no thing for you, dad. Like, you can just lift me up. I can put the ball through the hoop. Like, who's the person that has endless resources, right? The person that it doesn't matter how much something costs, they can afford it, and they can go get it for you. Mom and dad, right? Mom and dad, I can ask them for anything. They're just the ATM, this flowing stream of cash that I can just put my hand out and get it, and I can go make it happen. Like, our kids, for whatever reason, just think like, boom, we can make Disney World happen in an instant, right? Like, guys, I, I, have to, I have to, like, with my kids, I have to look them in the eye, and unfortunately, I have to disappoint them all the time, right? I have to, like, I have to look at Shepard and be like, but I wish I was, like, seven foot eight and I could lift you up. I wish I was Stuart, that I could lift you up and I could put you in the hoop yourself. Like, I wish I could do that, but I, I can't. Like, I, I have to... I have to disappoint my boys. But you know the person that never has to disappoint is God. 
Look, there's a reason that the Bible, one of the titles that it gives God regularly is that of a father. It's no coincidence that the Bible regularly talks about God as father. Look, the Bible does this because it's communicating intimacy, right? Like he wants us to know the type of intimacy that he ha- we have with the Father in our relationship when Jesus has won salvation for us. The type of relationship we get is that of what seems like a relationship with the Father, like a good earthly father points to the type of connection and intimacy that we get with God. But it also responds to our, his capability. It responds to God's capability. God doesn't face a problem that he can't be like, I can do that. Never has he been faced with a prayer that you've brought him that it's like, I just, I, I wish you knew me a little bit better because I'm just not capable of doing that thing, right? That's not who our God is. No, our God is the one that is unlimited in his power. He's unlimited in his knowing. He is the ultimate God. All things find their origin and their start and their beginning in God because he's the one that spoke them into existence. He's the one that is completely capable. Now here's the problem. God is capable of wonderful things, but we're too skeptical to believe it. We're too skeptical to believe it. Look, we're like Sarah. We're like Sarah. We laugh with skepticism at the possibility of wonder, don't we? Before the age of reason or like the enlightenment period, um, here's what the world is like, right? The world um, looked like a world of wonder, a world of wonder, right? So people saw themselves as spiritual creatures. People were vulnerable to blessings and curses, angels and demons, gods who made and ran the world. Earth was just a part of the cosmos, which were made with like this intense intentionality, and then it was packed with purpose and meaning, and the people, these spiritual creatures, people that viewed their life in terms of spiritual realities, they lived with a mystery, they lived with a limitation, and they lived as if the spiritual shaped the day-to-day happenings in their life. But that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world that lacks wonder and views the supernatural as unnecessary, doesn't it? That's the world that we inhabit right now. You can believe what you want about God or the afterlife, but to be taken seriously, you have to trust in things like science and medicine and technology for all answers about the real world that we live in. That's where, look, we are trained to think this way. Maybe even a better way is we're shamed to think this way. So there's this author, Charles Taylor, he's a philosopher. Um, Any, like, pastor or Bible teacher that you look to today, they have been influenced by Charles Taylor. He's like the man behind the curtain. Everybody has heard his concepts, but they don't know his name or know what he looks like, right? So here's what he says. He says, we've actually been trained in disciplines of disenchantment. Disciplines of disenchantment. Here's what he says. We regularly accuse each other of magical thinking, of indulging in myth, of giving way to fantasy, 
We say that X, speaking of a person, isn't living in our century like we progress beyond them if they act out of a sense of the supernatural or the magical or the mythical or the fantasy that Y has medieval mind and while Z, whom we admire, the person we look up to, is way ahead of her time. Look, we feel this, all right? So here's, here's how you see this, and here's how you experience this, all right? So you feel shame about having, like, a Bible in public or even acknowledging that you read the Bible, right? Because this is something that you can do in private. If people find out about it, it's like, oh, that's good. Like, I'm glad you have found something that's going to help you, that's going to help. Like, it, it serves your soul. You do that in private. But whenever they find that you live by it, what happens? You lose credibility, Right? Well, that, that ancient text, like the Bible, like seriously, like you, you try to live your life by the principles that you see in the, like haven't we progressed beyond that? Like the old Bible, like it's so irrelevant, right? Like all those guys have been dead for so long. Like that, the society is way beyond what was happening in biblical times. Like, you look and you get your, you, you live by the principles of the, like, you lose credibility, right? Then you also think about prayer, and it's like, oh, great, you do prayer in your private life, right? Uh, that's great meditation. That's a great meditation. Like, while you're doing, like, your yoga poses and praying, like, I bet that is just so good for you in your own space. But look, whenever you start to believe that prayer actually does something, what happens? You're crazy, right? You, you pray and think that whenever you bring something to the God of the universe that things are going to happen? Like, you're, you're insane. You're absolutely crazy, right? Look, this is what happens with Sarah. This is what happens with, like, out of everything that God has done in Abraham's life, like, like we've seen Abraham have visions and dreams. We've seen the things that God has already said to do, how it has produced fruit in Abraham's life. You have, you've heard stories like we've talked about before. Abraham was alive at the same time whenever Noah was alive. Like, he had heard stories about the flood. He had heard about the ways that God had intervened in the world. Like, there are stories, there are experiences. But Sarah, in the midst of knowing all this, what does she do whenever God says, Sarah's going to have a son by the time I come back in a year? She laughs. She's been trained in the disciplines of disenchantment. And look, we feel this too. We feel this when we come to the Bible it's like, I don't, I'm going to open this. I don't know if God's going to talk to me, though. If God's still there, then maybe he'll meet me here. Or we do this with our prayers, too, right? Like, I mean, how many times are there are things in your life that you don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to make it happen? And it's like, but I don't know. Like, prayer? Like, does God even hear me? Like, if I try to bring this to him, is he get, will he actually give me and lend me his ear? I feel like I've prayed about certain things in my life for so many years and it hasn't come to fruition. It, I don't know if it works. 
Look, we live with that same disenchantment. We laugh the laugh of Sarah because we have been disciplined in skepticism. And what is God doing here? He's confronting our mindset. He confronts Sarah, but look, he's confronting you and me too. Look, here's what we've tried to do. We've tried to graduate from the posture of a child and tried to graduate to that of an adult. If God is the father, then our rightful place and role is that of a child. And look, we've tried to graduate. We've tried to graduate. We've lost our sense of wonder in the process of trying to go from a child and go to an adult. And we've become disciples of skepticism rather than children of wonder. That's what many of our realities that we experience is right now. And here's what I want us to see. Jesus is here to call you back tonight. Jesus is here to call you back tonight. Because in Matthew 19, Jesus meets someone that's very much like you and me. He meets the rich young ruler, right? And so in Matthew 19, this rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he tells him everything that he's done, how he's kept the law, he's followed all the rules. And Jesus, who's the God that showed up at Abraham's doorstep and heard Sarah laugh in the tent, he knows what's going on in this man's life. And so he peers into his soul and he knows, he knows that he, this man has lost his sense of wonder. And like we look to science and like we look to technology, this man looked to his money for the answer to everything that happens in the real world. And so what does Jesus tell him to do? He says, go sell everything that you have, give your money to the poor, and then come follow me. And what happens with this man? He walks away grieving because he had many possessions. So Jesus' disciples, they look at this man, and if you had a lot of possessions, it was viewed as a sign of God's blessing on that person's life. So they see this man. They probably know, or at least have heard stories about this man. And so they're like, man, this guy has it, right? Like he's followed God. He's obeyed God. God has blessed his life. If this guy turns away, and here's the question they bring to Jesus, who can be saved? And look at verse 26. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Sounds very similar to the question that's posed to Sarah in the midst of her laughter, isn't it? So look, Jesus doesn't just call us back, he also brings us back. Because Jesus is the God who walks. Jesus is the God who came and put on human flesh and lived life at a three mile per hour pace and he walked with people. Where did he teach his disciples? On walks. Where did he meet people? On walks. Where did he perform his miracles? On walks. Jesus is the son who believes who lives with a sense of wonder. What do you see that happens with Jesus when people come and they ask Jesus, how are you doing your miracles, Jesus? How do you pray? How do you do all these things? He lives with a sense of wonder, and he's like, I only do the things that God tells me to do. I only perform the miracles that my Father tells me to do. I, I, I say no to the crowd so I can get away with my father and I can continue to live in the posture of the child, my rightful place. But then Jesus gives us the right to be God's child because he goes and he lays his life down for us. 
Jesus does what is impossible to his disciples, knowing who he is and the perfect obedience that Jesus experiences here in this life. He knows that if he goes to lay his life down, that he gives his sonship to you and me. And so Jesus goes and lays his life down so, look, you can become the son and daughter of the living God. So look, Jesus calls us back. He's confronting us here in the life of Abraham and Sarah. But look, he also brings us back. Look, God does everything for you in order to have relationship with him. So look, we need to come back to our pattern, all right? Repent and replace. Repent and replace. Look, it's time for us to become children of wonder again. It's time for us, here's the pattern, all right, to reject skepticism and for us to start believing again. It's time to reject the laughter of Sarah, and it's time for us to start living with the wonder, the childlike wonder that we see Jesus live with in his life in ministry. So here's how you reject skepticism, all right? It's like the kick that you see in Inception, right? And, you seen Inception? Everybody seen Inception, right? All right, so Inception, this kick is uh, in the dream. They would set up something that made them feel like they were falling, so it would rush them back awake, all right? So look, here's what you need to do. Every single time that you feel the urge to laugh, the laugh of Sarah, it should serve as a kick in your soul to say, no, I'm rejecting the skepticism that my soul experiences in this world. And then, look, you replace by believing and living a sense of a life of a sense of wonder by remembering. By remembering. You remember all the times that you've heard God's voice in your life. You remember all the times that God has answered prayer in your life. You look back on your life and you remember your conversion because, look, it's a miracle. Because what that proves is that Jesus was right that he is still in the business of resurrecting the dead. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins and you've been made alive with Jesus. So look, begin to live a life of wonder again. To resume your rightful place as a child. And you live as Jesus lived with this life a sense of of wonder, you reject skepticism and you start believing again. All right, so let's, let's tie all this up, all right? Wind it down. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a church like this? Can you imagine, like, look, we're less than two years old, right? We're a church that's less than two years old. We're still in this place where the culture of our church is being shaped and formed. Can you imagine being a part of a church that has deep fellowship but also big belief. Like, my soul screams that I want to be a part of a church like that, right? Like, my soul wants to be part of a church that experiences deep fellowship and big belief, that we live at God's place and we have meaningful fellowship with God and one another. You open up your Bible and God speaks to you because you come to it with a sense of wonder that you are a spiritual creature, that you're the child of the living God, knowing that the Father wants to come and speak to you, that you go to community group and before you know it, 
three hours have passed because you just enjoy one another. Like, I want to be a part of that kind of church. I want to be a part of a a kind of church that has this big belief, both personal and corporate. Like, I want to be a part of a church where the people believe that you can actually put the sin that you've struggled with for years to death. That there is a God who has placed His resurrection power inside of you and the patterns of sin in your life can truly be put to death. That you believe that God will save the person that you've given up on. That you see the person that it's like that person will never believe in Jesus but you start praying again with the sense of wonder that God woke me up. He can wake that person up too. That we, we believe that God will renew a city like St. Louis that has been on a downward trajectory for well over 50 years. Like, we have, we have people, teams that come into this city, that come to serve with us, and we hear constantly, man, it's, this place is kind of hard, right? This place is pretty challenging, isn't it? Yeah, but like we're a part of a church that believes that God is going to advance his kingdom in St. Louis. That we believe that God will bring dead churches back to life again. That we believe that God will raise up new leaders that go and plant new strategic churches in different areas in our city. And that God's going to advance his kingdom here. And I want to be a part of a church like that. Amen? So how do we take steps towards becoming this kind of church and this kind of people? Look, you adopt God's pace. You adopt God's God's pace. You pursue fellowship with the living God. You live with wonder like a child. Look, because what is too wonderful for our God? Amen? Let's pray to be that church right now. Pray with me.